and out of the window. Let's get rid of the old BBC image. Let's get rid of the old programs. Let's astound the critics. I thought the whole show was quite magnificent. I agree, it was quite fantastic. Let's experiment with time. New show. Nah, let's do I'm sorry, I'll read that again. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, with the Angus Prune tune, we once again bring to your attention Tim Brooke Taylor, John Cleese, David Hatch, Joe Kendall, and Bill Oddie. Five people whose names have the ring of success. Here is their spokesman, John Otto Cleese, to say... It's I'm sorry, I'll read that again. Again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we present one of the most thrilling stories of all time. A story to chill your blood and make your feet run loose. It's titled... Winnie the Pooh. The Spy with My Cold. It all started when I was called to the chief's office. Now, come in, number three. I'm number two, sir. You've been promoted. <laughs> Shut the door, lock it, and shoot the bolt. <laughs> Fred, I've got some pretty bad news. Five and nine are finished. They were caught in a nightclub in Istanbul with six and eight. The bill was a pound. So you're already man. This is an emergency. Repeat, emergency. Emergency, sir. No, no, I'll repeat emergency. <laughs> somebody, or someone posing as somebody, has stolen a march. What exactly does this mean, sir? We shall have to have two Februarys. In the silence that followed, the phone screamed. The chief picked up the telephone. Hello, telephone. What are you doing this evening? Hello, hello. Uh, give me long distance. Uh, 2,000 miles. Uh, that'll do. He listened for a minute and then barked some orders into the mouthpiece. <laughs> Number three, unless we locate the missing month, the whole economy of this country could be ruined. We've lost a month. We mustn't lose a minute. April found me in France. She'd been looking for me since February. I stayed with April until May and only left her for June. It was leading me nowhere, but it was fun. There was still no trace of the missing month. Then all at once, a clue. The book of the month for March. So, someone had published. Just behind me in the library, I heard an extraordinary conversation. It didn't surprise me. I was listening. nothing to do with it. I took a plane, but had to give it back. Eventually, I took off for far-off exotic places. Hawaii, Bondi, Acapulco, Bilston. But it was in America that things took a sudden turn. In fact, at Harvard. I say, look at that cookie professor wearing the DRPA gown. But what's that on his head? A mortar board. Concrete evidence at last. Good heavens, why, that's Professor Nagila of Harvard University. <laughs> 
So that was Harvard Nagila. <laughs> he traveled everywhere with a woman he called his wife, Mrs. Nagila. The professor was taking a slug of whiskey. Who put this slug in my whiskey? Answer the door. What was the question? I entered the room. The professor sat at a rude table. I ignored it. To his left sat the woman nursing a gun. Go to sleep, revolver. Go to sleep, my dear. You've got nothing on me, but I'll beat the pants off you. Then I noticed his shirt. It was made from hair. Much hair. Oh, stop doing that. And his trousers, they were mohair. And on his head, even mohair. I now had the material to expose him. Nagila, I must warn you that the trousers you are wearing may be taken down and used in evidence against you. Right, shall we go? May I have a wash? Why? Then I'll come clean. In his office, the district attorney looked quizzically at me. I'm beginning to get a little worried about it. Will you prefer charges? I prefer not to. All right, Nagila, why did you steal a march? I wanted to ruin the boat race and prevent the last grand national at Aintree. Worthy causes. But we're still missing one thing. Open that box. What's in it? The march. And there's a man in there, too. Speak to us. Good evening. Here is the end of the sketch. For our tea time talk today, we have with us Clint St. Arthur Fitzgibbon. Who is talking to Mrs. Edith Lintel. Mrs. Lintel, you are the lady chairman of a society in Cheltenham which calls itself the Gentlewoman's Protection Action Group. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, of course you do, yes. Um, now, 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 why do you feel there's a need for a Gentlewoman's Protection Action Group? Well, the good women of Cheltenham, there are three of us, <laughs> were terrified because of the recent increase in violence and hooliganism. We were terrified of being beaten with large sticks and thrashed about the head. But is there much of that in Cheltenham? Uh, no, but we'd be even more terrified if there were. And we'd also be beaten with large sticks and thrashed about the head. Yes, I see. Well, what methods do you use to protect yourself? Well, one of our devices is this poison ivy brooch. We thrust it at the hooligan and it brings him out in a terrible rash. Yes, well, surely that doesn't work very quickly. No, but it is useful if you're being attacked over two or three days. I see. <laughs> have this fountain pen. But that looks just like an, you know, an ordinary fountain pen. It is an ordinary fountain pen. That is clever. Mm. <laughs> what, what do you use it for? For taking down the name and address of the thug. Or for sketching his likeness. Or for poking his eyes out. Fascinating. And then we have this handbag. Which is an ordinary handbag. Which lets out into 20 square feet of gorilla netting. Gorilla netting? Oh, yes. We brought that in when we started our Gorillas Anonymous. What was that? I didn't hear anything. You're imagining things, young man. Gorillas Anonymous. So that anyone who thinks they have gorilla chasing them can ring up and we tell them not to panic and reassure them. Then we rush round and beat up the gorilla with pointed sticks and flamethrowers. Don't do that again. What? You raised your finger as if you were about to strike me. Uh. That was a grunt. You're a gorilla, aren't you? I am not a gorilla. Yes, you are. Look at those arms and legs and teeth. Oh, all right. I am a gorilla. <laughs> At last. Come in, Brown. Sit down. Now, listen, Brown. John, huh? 
I've had a complaint that you aren't like all the other boys in this school. Now, what do you say? It's not true, sir. Well, you might as well be honest. Somebody spotted you in the showers. You're a girl, aren't you? Yes, sir. You do realize this is a boys' school? Yes, sir. Why? Why, John? Uh, Jane. Daddy wanted a boy. If you stay here much longer, you may get one. <laughs> now, look. I know you've done very well. I know you're Captain of Rugger. <laughs> but you'll have to leave. Then I'm no longer head boy, sir. No, John. No, Jane. No, I'm afraid not. It'll be a big shock to Mummy, sir. Didn't anybody tell her? Well, she's very sensitive. Daddy didn't want to make her go through it all again. Well, you'll have to tell her. And you'll have to give up boxing. <laughs> Damn it, we shall all miss you, John. Now, Jane. But a rule's a rule. How old are you now? Eighteen, sir. Hmm. Well, rules aren't everything, of course. <clears throat> I've changed a lot since I first came, sir. Yes, you have. <laughs> Look, come away with me, John. Now, Jane. For the halls. What about your wife? No, she'll be all right. The chemistry master will take care of her. Marriage? No, acid. I'm not sure if I can. It's not true about Matron and me, you know. We are living together. I'll give it up for you, though. I don't want to, sir. Ah, well. T'was but a fading vision of a dream that vanished and was gone. Beneath the passing omnibus of time, man stumbles and is done. You know who wrote those lines? Yes, sir. I did. Well, before you leave, wipe them off. No, wait. You can't go in there anymore. I'll get old Dogsbody to do it. But Dogsbody died, sir. So he did, so he did. I never caught the boy who did that. Sir, he saw me in the showers. It was too much for him. Poor old Dogsbody. He saw you absolutely in the, uh, uh, showers. Absolutely. Stark. Undressed. Naked, sir. What a way to go. <laughs> well, then, this is, uh, goodbye, John. Uh, Jane. Uh, goodbye, sir. And Jane. Uh, John. Uh, Jane. I'm not half so worried about you being attracted to the other boys now. <laughs> Men at work. Today we interview PC Herbert Platt, actually on duty during the rush hour in the high street of Western Supermare. You are an ordinary policeman on traffic duty. Uh, that is correct. I am a sturdy bastion of law and order. With only my plain but expressive gloves do keep the wheels of England's traffic turning. Turn, turn, turn they go as I, with my human hands, do manage them as no mechanical or electrical traffic lights will achieve. Oh, yes, I am their guide and their master. Without my instruction, the motorist is a lost sheep. And if for one moment my concentration should waver, total chaos may ensue. Mine is a great and weighty burden. Indeed, were I to be a wanton or a laggard, nay, whole areas of England's traffic might come even to a you, you've been at it for many years, I imagine. I uh, know, this is my first time at it. Hadn't you better get rid of this lot? Ah, yes. So watch closely as, with one imperious gesture, I bring these in from the right. No, wait a moment. No, these from... Uh, oh! uh, sorry. First these from the left. Uh, no, 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 don't start. Uh... Allow me. Oh, thank you. Can you show us some of your signals now? Uh, of course. Most of them are based simply on a wave of the hand which is attached to the arm by the wrist. See this one. What happened? He waved back. 
I suppose it's vital to give exactly the right signal. Oh, oh yes, yes. The slightest nuance or digital inflection makes all the difference. Now, take these two. Obviously, they're going to crash straight into each other. Obviously. Now, if I give the signal like this... They do. <laughs> if I give it correctly... Just what exactly is the difference? Well, it's difficult to explain. Perhaps I should demonstrate. Here, come another clue now. See if you can spot which signal I use. Yeah, they can. The wrong one. Quite correct. <laughs> and do you think there are enough good drivers around? Oh, yes, yes. I shall take it upon myself to test their reactions a little. For example, I see a car coming over there, so I carefully position myself on the island in front of this keep left side. Then I wait till he's almost on top of me, and then I step aside, giving the appropriate indication to the driver to keep left. Now, left to crawl! <laughs> Well, I give him about 9 out of 10. 9 out of 10? Well, he nearly made it. Of course, it's impossible if I leave it that late. Oh, well, thank you. You seem to have a little more traffic building up now. Yes, yeah, so I'm afraid that's not my problem. Well, my time's up. It's my tea break. Now, I wonder if you might hold this lot up while I get off the island. Certainly. Stop now, please. Thank you. Nothing can capture the atmosphere and excitement of an artist's performance better than a real, live, in-person recording of their actual cabaret act before a nightclub audience. Here is a number from the brand new live recording made during the cabaret at the famous Eastside Nightery and Eatery, the Café Olay, of a singer who needs no introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, the Café Olay is proud to introduce a very, very wonderful, very talented singing star. We've heard many times on TV and records. A big welcome, please, for Mr... It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. Table 16. Except you and me. So set him up, Joe. No, uh, three years I've got a little story. And an avocado crumble. I think you should know. An avocado crumble. Oh, good. Uh, three avocado crumbles and a cherry with a mouse in it. My friend. Cheers. Cheers. To the end. Where's my table so 16? I'm sorry, sir, but we'll hold on. In that case, we'll go elsewhere. Yeah. I'm sorry, sir, but you have to go. I think I'm going to be sick. Excuse me, sir, we are trying to do a recording. What?
time to relax. Sit back and put up your feet. This is a stick-up. No, it isn't. Oh, I'm sorry, David. I was but joking. <laughs> David? Oh. Well, time now for the next thrilling instalment of our adventure serial, The Curse of the Flying Wombat. Tim Brown, Windsor, and his friends were greeting Lady Constance Coverlet when Casey O'Sullivan and Masha Wilkins cut down the mast of the flying wombat. Look out the mast! It's going to fall on top of us! Missed. In the confusion, the villains made their getaway. But in their haste, they left behind them an important clue. Kind of stout. Six letters. It could lead us to the hiding place of the green eye of the little yellow god. In which case, Casey O'Sullivan and his henchman, Masha Wilkins, have been wasting their time. And Maisie Robinson was telling the truth, in spite of the pig. So, the Eskimo ambassador to Hong Kong is really Brian Borrow, disguised as the Duke d'Orfebvre, and not Horace Featherman, as we first thought. And the place on the map, marked of the Cross, has nothing to do with Marty, son of Wonder Horse, at all. What blind, blind fools we've been! It all fits in, don't you see? It all falls into place! <laughs> don't you see? Don't you see? I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> There's still one thing that bothers me. What's that? Indigestion. Excuse me, Captain. Please. What was that? It's me, Grimbling. Why? I've got indigestion, too. Well, what is it, Grimbling? It's Lady Constance to cover it. She says she would like you to come and see her below. I've already seen it. <laughs> but no matter, I shall come at once. Come in. It is I, your ladyship. Oh, what do you mean by bursting into a lady's boudoir unannounced? Uh, nothing. Oh, pretty. <laughs> Come over here and sit on my knee where I can see you better. I would rather stand. Very well. Come and stand on my knee. <laughs> Madam, I must tell you that I am a married man. So is my last husband. Now, Captain, you and I must have a little chat about something very important. Something very important. I'm sorry, could you speak up a little? <laughs> While the captain and Lady Constance talk earnestly below decks, Fiona Rabbit Vacuum, disguised as Jim Ladd, the cabin boy, takes a popular novel from the ship's library and carries it up to the crow's nest. Yes, this is where I take up the story. As I stood on the stern, Tim whispered in my ear. You're standing on my stern. <laughs> oh, pity me. I am an unhappy maiden in distress. Well, take it off then. I can't. <laughs> Why not? For fear of disgust. Disgust? Yes, disgust of wind. Fair enough. <laughs> oh, Tim, talk to me as you used to when we first met. Oh, all right. Uh... Oh, Tim, you're so manly. Yes. You're so handsome. Yes, yes. Devilishly good-looking, so rugged, so strong. Oh, yes. You're so devil-may-care, you're so brave. Yes. You're wonderful. Did you write this? Yes. <laughs> And I'm so plain, yes. ugly, yes. characterless and boring. Yes. Did you write that too? Yes. I never could write for women. Oh, Fiona, look up there at that seagull flying high in the air, free from all cares and woes, swooping gracefully over the water, climbing up far higher and higher, wheeling into the wind as carefree as could be. Got it. 
Fiona. <laughs> What's that? My hand. No, I thought I heard something. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? No, we've gone about as far as we can on radio. Excuse I, sir, but was it you who has just shot that albatross with a rifle? Oh, I thought it was a seagull. No, sir, it was a rifle. Ah. A, a seagull don't make so much noise when it's fired. <laughs> I'm sorry, I seem to have got a fit of the giggle. That night, as the moon swings high over the yardarm, all is silent. Sorry! <laughs> Suddenly, the piece is shattered by a cry for help. Help! It is the voice of a woman. Oh! <laughs> the sound brings Tim Brown Windsor from his bunk. What was that? It was me saying the sound brings Tim Brown Windsor from his bunk. Help! She's being kidnapped. In an instant, the ship was pandemonium. The captain immediately dispatched Grimbling. Grimbling, take that. Oh, 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 you're too kind, sir. Uh, uh, eek, crumple, crumple, slump. He's dead. I say, was that meant to happen? I don't know. Hey, wait a moment, he's got something on the next page. Look, if you'd only have the manners to let me finish what I was saying... The captain immediately dispatched Grimbling to see what was happening. Oh, how boring. And before you could say popple cat, popple, popple. Anyway, he was back jolly soon. <laughs> oh, sir, 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 there's, there's three enormous kangaroos down in the hole, sir. And they're all wearing bowler hats and cami knickers uh, and singing selections from Gilbert and Sullivan and abducting Jim Lad. Yes. Grimbling, you're lying again. No, sir, I'm standing. <laughs> I'm, I'm very small, sir. Jim Lad is in mortal danger. Quickly, after the blackguard. After them. Uh, after them. After, after them. them. After them. Who is the mysterious villain who is abducting Fiona Thingbu Wallop? Who can save her now? Oh, what? Is this the end? How does Humphrey Barclay manage to look so young? Do you dare to listen to next week's exciting episode? Do the BBC dare to broadcast it? strange tune bring to an end another edition of I'm Sorry I'll Read That Again. The show of which so many have said it's a load of old rubbish. It's a load of old rubbish. I don't understand the joke. <laughs> the voices you heard were those of Timbrook Taylor, John Cleese, David Hatch, Joe Kendall and Billotti. And the scripts were written by Timbrook Taylor, Graham Chapman, Graham Garden, Eric Idle and Billotti, who also wrote the songs. The rest of the music was provided by Dave Lee and the whole show was produced by Humphrey Barclay. Oh no he isn't. Oh yes he is. Oh no he isn't. Oh, well, perhaps you're right. <laughs> anyway, tune in to Prune at the same time again next week to hear the voice of Radio Chin tell you once again... It's I'm sorry, I'll read that again. Again. Get away! I've been in my bath and I have a good laugh and the singing is named after me. <laughs>